Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Med Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, hey, everybody. Today, we have a mega episode. Our guest is the co-founder and head of risk for Fabric, which provides factor-based risk management applications for investment advisors. In today's show, we're talking all about risk with someone who's been there, done that, and held chief risk officer roles at Morgan Stanley, Salmon Brothers, Bridgewater, and the University of California Pension. And if that wasn't enough, he also helped write the Volcker Rule while working for the Treasury. Our guest begins by walking us through his framework for assessing risk and why the three keys are leverage, liquidity, and concentration. He also shares the lessons he learned from surviving the 87 crash, 2000 tech bubble, and 2008 global financial crisis. As we wind down, our guest shares what led him to start his newest venture and how he plans to assist advisors with risk management for client portfolios. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. It's always exciting when YChart releases a new enhancement to the platform, and just recently they launched the new Attribution Analysis Tool. It can help you see what's driving a portfolio's performance, displayed with quick hitting and easy to understand heat map and bar chart views. You can use this for funds, ETFs, and model portfolios and see a quick screenshot of the top eight contributors and detractors over any time period, or look at the full attribution table. I've used it to check out some of the strategies and love how easy it is to use. For current YChart users, you're likely already familiar with the power of their report builder and proposal generation offerings. Now you can integrate attribution tables and visuals into your proposals to help tailor the investment story that resonates with your clients. Check out this new feature for yourself and get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial by going to ycharts.com slash meb dash Faber, or just click the link in the show notes for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Fabric's Rick Bookstabber. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. I can say live from New York City. You in Manhattan? Yep. Going to ballet, walking around town, seeing fall time there. One of my favorite times in New York City. I miss it. Yeah, it's like the city's 80% back to life now. I'm going to one of my other favorite places this weekend, which is Colorado, Telluride specifically. So hopefully it's all the, the leaves changing this time of year. So for listeners recording this at the very end of September, it all seems calm and copacetic in the world. Let's talk about your favorite topic. 
you probably have one of the more absurd resumes and curriculum vitae's over the years with some of your stops. I mean, I have to look at it. I mean, Bridgewater, more capital, Solomon, Morgan Stanley, Front Point, on and on and on. University of Cal. You've seen a lot of different setups in a lot of different markets. You've written a few books on this topic. I love them. Talk to me a little bit about how you think about risk in general as to lay a little bit of concrete foundation, and then we'll start to get into all sorts of weird topics. The first thing is risk is the other side of the coin from opportunity. So anybody who's looking at opportunities in the market, anybody that is focused on alpha, if they're not looking at risk in the same context, they're kind of missing half of the equation. But at the same time, risk is fairly complex. You can't boil it down to a number. You can't look at it based on what you've observed historically. It's something that's kind of a dynamic, just like the markets are dynamic. And so you need to know what's going on in the market today. What are the things that you're worried about? And if one of the things you're worried about occurs, how does that interact with the vulnerabilities of the market to create potential problems? One way because it's not a simple topic. It's not one-dimensional. Otherwise, it wouldn't be very interesting to be in the area. Talk to me a little bit about markets. Is there something that makes them particularly prone to crisis? When I try to understand the vulnerability of the market, and any risk is really a combination of two things. It's some event that occurs, which people think of scenarios, but it's also how vulnerable is the market to that event. So starting point is how vulnerable is the market? And I look at three things as a start for that, leverage, liquidity, and concentration. If you want to look at the market today and ask the question, is it more or less risky than it's been, say, a year ago or whatever? Just ask the question, is it more leveraged? Is there less liquidity? Is it more concentrated? Is that been a general trend? Is that something you look at kind of like a short-term sort of situation? Is it more of like a long-term buildup? So I'm thinking about some of these types of ways of thinking of that. And sometimes it feels like these things can go on for a really long time before it reaches sort of a terminus event. How do you wrap your head around sort of that challenge? That's one of the things about being in risk management. You're wrong a lot more than you're right, because you can have a market that's set up for problems, but that doesn't mean the problems occur. I was worried before 2008 about the level of leverage and some of the innovations that were out there, uh, collateralized debt obligations, and things went along for quite a while before they became realized. So you can be you know, concerned about something and the markets can be vulnerable, but things can still go on for a long time. And so I don't like to talk about the markets being in a bubble or the markets set up to crash. I'd rather just say, the markets are vulnerable right now, and I can explain why they're vulnerable. And that doesn't mean that you should sell everything and walk into bonds tomorrow. Bonds are an interesting topic we can get into in a little bit too, because I feel like that's a head scratcher for a lot of people on how to think about bonds in general. You talk about the four horsemen of the econopocalypse. That's a big word for me this early in the morning. I haven't had enough coffee. And you talk about sort of the four dominant influences at play. You want to touch on some of those ideas there? I wrote a book with Princeton University Press a few years ago called The End of Theory. There's a lot of chutzpah in that title. 
I'm surprised they let me get away with it. But basically, the idea is that if you want to look at markets, especially markets during times of dislocation or times of high crisis, economics and the standard methods that you learn in finance don't do the trick. Mathematical models don't do the trick. Looking at history doesn't do it. And there's a number of reasons why this is the case. And these are the four horsemen. Instead of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I call them four horsemen of the economopolis. But the key component for all of them is that if you have a market that's complex, it moves along in a way that is difficult to set down in a set of equations. It becomes a narrative. It's like a story that's unfolding and it's got its twists and its turns, certain surprise endings. And if you try to encapsulate that either by just saying, well, I'm going to look at the last couple of years and whatever happened then probably is a good guide to the future. If you try to put it down into a bunch of equations or an econometric model, you're going to miss the point. Because when one thing happens, it feeds into the other. The interaction of leverage, liquidity, and concentration is a great example of that. I have an analogy that I like to give a sense of these dynamics. I think of a nightclub. And if you're a fire marshal and you're looking at a nightclub and you're trying to figure what's the vulnerability of that nightclub to a fire, you look at three things. You look at the means of egress. How easily can people get out? How many people can get out per minute? You look at how crowded the nightclub is. How many people are there who will have to get out? And then you look at the combustibility, the flammability of the space. How much time will they have to get out? How crowded the nightclub is, it's like the concentration of the market. How many people are really active in that part of the market? The liquidity is the exits. How liquid is the market? How quickly is it for people to get out? And the flammability is, is leverage. Basically, the more leverage there is in the system, the more quickly people are going to have to leave if something goes wrong. The reason this gets complex is it turns out that if there's the fire, things don't work the way that it does if you just sort of watch the typical night in the nightclub where people are going in and out. Suddenly, the exits get slammed. People can't get out. They're cry- crowding. They're sort of going over each other. You can't model that if you look at the world in a day-to-day world. The same thing with the markets. You can't look at the markets day-to-day and say, okay, everything's fine. If something goes wrong, people just exit because I know this is how people can get liquidity. The basic idea in the end of theory is encapsulated in that concept that you have these complex dynamical systems at work. And what you see day-by-day does not give you a really good handle on the sort of risks that you really care about, which is the risk of things really go bad. Yeah. And so as we think about it, I think the first answer is just don't go to the nightclub or watch movies at home. But for most investors thinking through this, is it a scenario where you say, okay, well, if I'm not going to use, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, you said it wasn't a situation where you said, don't look at history, but it said, how do you think about the possible outcomes. You're like, all right, well, I see, I don't want to be in a crowded nightclub when it's a ton of kindling in there. How do I think about avoiding those situations? Is it a kind of constant monitoring? Is it through diversification? What would a fireman say if he was looking at that nightclub? 
Well, it really is don't go to the nightclub. But the thing is, in the markets, it's not an either or. It's make sure you're not too much into the nightclub. So where is the market vulnerable? Where are, is there concentration? Where is there potential liquidity? Don't go into that in a lot of space. Or if you do, you better feel like this is really a great opportunity because the risk is high as well. A good example of that now, it's kind of like, this is no secret. If you look at concentration in the market right now, FANG and related stocks, technology is where it's at. And people have more in that nightclub, so to speak, than they may realize because when this gets to diversification, you may say to yourself, hey, I'm in a broad-based index. I'm in, say, the S&P or I'm in some ETF like the S&P. So I'm diversified. Diversification means have a lot of different stocks that aren't highly correlated without a lot in any of those particular stocks. Well, if you're in the S&P, 25% of your capitalization is in 10 stocks and 40% of your exposure is in the technology sector. So you are crowded. You've made a bet, even though you didn't intend to. You're not diversified, even though you may not realize it, because you are in this very crowded space. So the first step is to understand where am I in a crowd and do I really want to be in that crowd? Let's rewind in history a little bit, and then we'll talk a little bit about the current day. You've been through 87, 2000, tequila crisis, Asian crisis, flash crash, on and on. Pandemic, forgot about that one recently. Global financial crisis. Do these guys have some rhymes? Are they all different? Is there some common thematics that you've kind of learned and appreciated over time? Or is each one a, a new surprise box? There are common themes to them. Can only go so far with those common themes because obviously people learn from past events, different innovations come to the fore. I think right now we could probably learn a lot from 2000 and the dot-com era. I think of big market events as different types. There's obviously ones that are just related to recession, right? The economy does bad. If there's expectations, the economy will do bad. The market does bad. Then there are the periods that are fundamentally driven, periods like what Greenspan called irrational exuberance, where people just get out ahead of their skis in terms of their view of fundamentals. And there's always some excuse for why this time it's different. With dot-com, it was old accounting measures of earnings don't matter anymore. Right now, the argument for high PEs is low interest rates mean that you don't discount forward earnings as much, you know, whatever. But that's kind of the fundamental component, and people finally wake up. And then there's what I would call the market-driven events. Really, 2000 had a bit of that. One of my favorite examples, even though it didn't hit the broad market, is LTCM in 2008, where it's not so much the fundamentals that are the trigger, it's high leverage, it's the market technicals that are the trigger. Something happens and people have to sell. And when they sell, market prices drop. And when market prices drop, more people have to sell. 1987 is a great example of that. In one day, the market dropped. The S&P dropped over 20% because people were selling. And then because they were selling, the market dropped. And you got this incredible cascade. There are certain themes or certain types of events you can look back at. I am not a fan of overweighting what's happened over the last couple of years as a basis for looking at risk. 
But I do believe that you can look over the large span, even going back to like post-World War II, look at all the situations where we've had major downturns and use those to kind of inform the way the market works and the odds that we'll have things looking forward, which, by the way, if you're a long-term investor, that's, I think, the most important thing to look at. You always see the disconnect, certainly, and this is partially why it plays out probably the way it does between what people say their intended horizon is. Almost everyone says they're a long-term you know, investor. Then you look at the time frame in which they analyze positions and make changes. I was trying to think of this concept of being wrong and what does it mean to be wrong? And so I said, how long are you willing to, quote, be wrong on investment? And I said, wrong means, in this case, underperformance versus a benchmark or your expectations. Nothing has otherwise changed. So the manager didn't die. There wasn't a major structural shift or government regulation, aliens or whatever. And you'll probably understand where this is going. 20% said they would give it a year. And then 52% said up to five years. The remaining 10, 20% said longer than five years, five to 10 over 10. And despite saying they have a long-term time horizon, the concept of the two don't align. That's also the fact that we're human, probably line up to see so much of the crazy behavior and bad behavior and emotional behavior over and over again. As you talked about the nightclub, I learned a new word this past couple of weeks, which was murmuration, which is the starlings, right? The birds moving. And that's kind of the analogy I love to make is that like the history gives you some idea of what's happened in the past, but things are always a little bit different in the way they move. But looking back, I mean, you talk about 1980s story of silver with the Hunt brothers. As we look at today, what does the world look like today to you? Any rhymes, particular risks? Does everything look warm and fuzzy? Anytime things are moving along really swimmingly, risk is building under the covers. And we're seeing it happen. Leverage is very high right now by a number of measures. Margin debt less free cash balances is at an all-time high. The percent of household wealth and equities is at an all-time high. You may not think of that in the same way in terms of leverage, but basically people are out above their normal risk tolerance. You see this high concentration, as I mentioned before, if you look at the size of the largest stocks or the technology sector, it's a time that even though volatility does not seem particularly high and things are doing nothing but going up, there's a basic vulnerability in the market if something goes wrong. So then you have to ask what could go wrong. And that's where you get into scenarios. The three that I think about, and I think most anybody thinks about right now, and it's not like there's a million of them out there. One is inflation. Another one is the possibility of, I'll call it a tech bubble. Basically, that we get a hard landing because technology is at such an extreme, various measures or fame stocks, however you want to look at it. And the third is some type of a macro event. It could just be tapering, or it could be a COVID resurgence leading to recession. So marry those types of possible events with the situation in the market. And that's where I would focus risk, because what really matters for most individuals, to your point, if something goes bad for six months or a year, Fine. You know, if you're a hedge fund manager, that's a problem. But if you're an individual, you're looking out to retirement, even you're 10, 20 years out, you can live with it. But if you have a 
2000 recur. It took us 13 years from 2000 to get back to where we were at the peak. So if you have a time frame of 10 or 20 years, that type of an event really matters to you. And it's even worse than it seems because the market dropped. It finally got back to where it was in 2000. But, you know, that's 13 years that you didn't have positive returns. If you expect, and it's a reasonable expectation based on long history, that equities will return like on average 7% a year, you actually were down 50% from where you should have been, so to speak, if things were normal. So when you look at these sorts of events, it can matter to you for a period longer than the event occurs. So those are the three that I really focus on. We have a uh, pinned Twitter thread that gives a nod to my Southern mom and grandma, where it's called What in Tarnation? And it's just a bunch of charts demonstrating some of the weirdness going on, particularly in US market cap weighted stocks, a lot of the co-inherited sort of indicators. And it's interesting because if you look at things like valuations, if you look at things like sentiment, if you look at things like the percent equity allocation, which you refer to, which is, I think, at all-time highs in the U.S., which on one hand for me is great. Americans are finally all starting to own stocks, but on the other hand has like an amazing negative correlation with future returns. But all three of those in particular have a huge overlap and correlation. They look like the same chart. So sentiment, valuation, percent, and equities. And the reason being is because on aggregate, people just own more stocks. The more they go up and they go down, they own less and they own more. But the problem is that's backwards probably of what it should be. They should own less when valuations are high and more when valuations are low. They should be more pessimistic when valuations are high and more optimistic when valuations are low. You know, Buffett talks about this, but that's not how it works. People get excited when they've made money, not when they have lost money. So simple things like rebalancing, of course, helps that or being valuation conscious. But it's hard when everybody's making hay, Rick, when your neighbors are going to Tahiti. I guess they're not going to Tahiti on travel bans, but they're buying cars, buying houses. That's what everyone's doing now, buying new houses. What should people do? How should they think about it in a way that is sober and sane and realistic? There's two sides to this, and they both have to do with thinking that you have a well-diversified, maybe even passive portfolio. So let's ignore people who are trying to make bets. Let's think of people who have the bulk of their equities in something that more or less is a big index. And that's where most people are. There's two things going on. One is, without realizing it, they're in a momentum trade. Because of market capitalization, the more things go up, the more they own. So you're momentum trading. And so you better realize that maybe you actually don't want to be momentum trading. And the second is, Getting to my previous point, you think you're diversified and you're not. You're making, because that momentum trading, you are making an outsized bet in certain sectors, in this case, in technology. So I think the first thing to do, as you mentioned early on, is know that you have that style implicitly, even though you think you're passive. Know that you have that bet implicitly, even though you think you're broadly diversified. And the first thing I would do I wouldn't even get to, do you have too much exposure? Because that's kind of risk 101 is 
do you now have, because of the run-up in equities, more equity exposure than your risk tolerance really would normally say? And if things start to go the other way, you're going to say, oh my gosh, what's going on? And start to sell right into it. But the other is to move away from these characteristics that are embedded in most indices because they're cap-weighted and move more towards a well-diversified portfolio, which would imply some notion of equal weighting, not literal equal weighting. You don't want to hold an equal amount in every stock because then you get into another problem, which is that some sectors have a lot more stocks than others. There's a lot more stocks in basic materials than there are in uh, banks, but kind of move more in that direction so you get better diversification and so that you're moving away from momentum. To me, that's kind of the sort of risk 101 first step to be taking. Yeah. I mean, the market cap weighting was an amazing innovation 50 years ago. And we talk about this on the show and I say, but it's a curious investment strategy, like what it enabled, which is low cost investing is amazing. But now we live in a world, you can implement low cost investing and other investing strategies and styles. The problem with market cap weighting is when things go totally bananas and you live through certainly the Japan is my favorite example, but there's been plenty of other times when smaller markets have gone nuts. The most recent India and China pre-financial crisis, the BRICS 2007 valuations, I think, were even crazier than the U.S. is now. The market cap weighting exposes you to that because it gets concentrated. And so a simple answer, equal weighting is certainly one, but at least breaking that market cap weight and ending in anything else to me. The hard part for a lot of people, I think, is they want to be Nostradamus, right? They want to forecast the futures. They're always worried about what the exact catalyst is going to be. Everyone's like, what's going to cause this to end? Is it inflation? Is it the Fed? Is it aliens, pandemic? And I think what's so great about your work is it gives you a framework thinking, look, I'm not putting words in your mouth. This is my interpretation. So <laughs> let me know if I'm off base. Is is like, you don't necessarily know what the exact catalyst may be, but you can understand when things are getting riskier and problematic, where you're starting to see enough of the kindling sitting around to where it could be a problem. What do you think about some of these other developments? Is this a sign of the times? Is this something else? I'm thinking about NFTs, cryptos, SPACs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't get me started. I'll... <laughs> so this last point, sort of close this out. You mentioned earlier, there's no mystery here. You can line up charts, whether it's PE ratio or level of leverage or go through them. So many of these are two things significant, near or at all-time highs, and they mirror very closely what the world looked like in 2000. I hate to say that because, you know, you never want to pin something back to another event. But in 2000, the market was down almost 50%. Technology was down over 70%. And again, it took 13 years to get back where we are. I don't want to overweight that, but you can look out there and sort of see whether that'll happen. Who knows? But you should at least understand that that's there. And then the other thing that's important to know, and this gets back to past events, nearly every decade from the 50s on, we've seen drops of over 35% in the market. In 1970, I don't even have to go through them. If you believe what people always believe, which is we have a normal distribution, you would see over 50 years, the odds of seeing 
35% down events in 50 years is less than 1% probability. So we're really living in a different sort of a world than what everybody puts in their mind. I think level setting in that way is useful. And I'm, again, I'm not saying sell everything, but at least understand that there is another side to what's going on in the market. Before you move on, I was relating very personally because I graduated college in 2000. So got to see firsthand a lot of the boom on one side and then the bust on the other side because all my friends from about 98 to 03 had moved to San Francisco, which was the land of milk and honey, right? And we kind of seen the echoes again. So got to see the crazy fun times, but also the decimation afterwards, like nuclear winter of the internet bust where you go up Craigslist and buy entire company's furniture for like, they're just like, dude, just come pick it up. We got to get out of here. We've defaulted on our leases. So got to see both sides. Well, it's funny. Then people have 08 also. So it's not like we're devoid of experience. How many people remember 87? That's another issue. But 2000, 2008. So anyway, getting to this stuff with crypto and NFTs and so on, I feel like crypto is, I can't understand what's going on. There are so many people, many very smart people who are on that bandwagon. And my argument has been for quite a while, and now we're seeing some evidence for it being a reality, that no government is going to cede its monetary authority. If crypto is successful, it will be shut down because no government wants people to be able to do an end run around their monetary authority. And we've now seen that happen with China. We've seen glimmers of it occurring in some other countries. And it may be that we see digital currency or digital versions of currency. We know a number of current countries, including China, are looking at that, but that's a different thing. For a country to take its currency and put it into a readily usable form, namely digital, is not the same thing as cryptocurrencies. The other problem with cryptocurrencies is what's the value of cryptocurrency? Think Bitcoin, should it be 5,000, 50,000, 500,000? I don't know. There's no basis. So, Or 5 million, you never know. Yeah, not 5 million, <laughs> yeah. So this is sort of a tangent. But I think that when you look at crypto, when you look at NFTs, when you look at SPACs, which now have sort of run their course to some extent, you're seeing innovations that may not be at the core of damaging the markets, the way that, say, collateralized debt obligations and so on were before 08. But they're kind of canaries in the coal mine. People can get so wild about things that in my mind, if you sit back and think a little bit, you sort of say, okay, well, whatever, I, I'm not going to go whole hog into this, is sort of a measure of euphoria and a measure of people kind of putting a certain set of reason to the side. Yeah. I want to hear about your new awesome startup in a second, but what's like an investor to do? You've consulted to some of the biggest well-funded institutions in the world. You've been at various funds. Our traditional sort of wheelhouse listener is a financial advisor, independent registered investment advisor. We have institutions and we also have a lot of individuals. What are the general takeaways from sort of number of decades in the markets as we think about putting this all together with the portfolio, but also where we are today? I think that in terms of the mindset and looking at risk, a simple starting point is to recognize that risk is 
not a number. Risk is not looking at the past and pushing it forward, that it's basically a dynamic narrative. And so if you're an advisor and you're talking with your client, it's a source of discussion. It's not just saying, oh, you know, risk is whatever. It's a living sort of a thing. And if you're looking at scenarios and things to worry about, there's a story to think about. There's specific parts of the market that will matter. So for example, with inflation, it's not just, oh, if there's inflation, maybe the market will drop. You know that certain risk factors will matter more than others. If there's inflation, smaller companies will be hurt more because they can't adjust their costs as readily. Companies that have to borrow short term will be hurt because rates will go up and so on. So I think a starting point is to look at risk more as narrative to understand the right way to do it. And just to give you an example of that, getting to all the places where I've worked, when we're concerned about some risk, and it didn't have to be like a cataclysmic thing, but you know, we're thinking about something, we'd get together in a room around the table, much like an advisor might with a client, and we basically would talk through stories and scenarios and how one thing might happen and how it could lead to something else, and what does that mean for our positions. But the big difference that I would add to that for an advisor is it's more than positions. An individual working with advisor has two characteristics that make the standard approach of risk management that I've used through my career wrong or incomplete. One is their time frame is not the same time frame as a bank or a hedge fund or an asset manager. They can bypass a lot of the risks, basically a lot of what they read about and a lot of what people worry about in the press is noise. If you've got a time frame measured in 5, 10, 20, 30 years. You also aren't leveraged. You're not in a situation where you're forced to get out. You don't have clients who might pull the plug and redeem. So that's one thing. The other thing that's really important is that risk comes from two sides for an individual. An advisor kind of has to look in two directions at once because you have the portfolio on one hand and there's risk to be concerned about there, but you have the client's goals and how those goals might change over time and as the market changes on the other. So it's like you're cutting with a scissor rather than a knife. You have to worry about both of these things. So it's a really complex problem. And I think it's sort of interesting that we think of super sophistication residing in hedge funds or whatever. The real sophistication, the real depth of issue is an advisor working with the client because they have to worry about a longer time frame. They have to worry about not just returns, but goals. And that's why it's actually a very rich area to be focused on. What does the framework lend itself to bonds? Bonds is sort of a weird asset class that used to offer a fair amount of income in a traditional sense that now, for the most part, does not in some parts of the world, certainly does not. <laughs> it's negative yielding. Is that business as usual? It's an inflation sort of real rates question in your mind, or is it something else going on where it's a potential risk as well that people maybe haven't thought about for the past, I don't know, what, 30 years in the US? Yeah. So the thing with bonds is if you hold a bond that doesn't match your liabilities, you've got risk. If you're concerned about paying for your kid's education in six or seven years, and you're holding a bond that has 
10 or 20 or 30 years, you've got risk. So a bond without adding the issue of duration and the timing of when you'll need that money is also a risky asset. And it's riskier now than it has been for a couple of reasons. One is inflation. The nominal yield is one-to-one with expected inflation. And the other is we are used to rates being so low that it's like in our mind, we don't conceive of rates maybe being 4% or 5%. When I first started in the markets, let me back up even more. When I was younger and building my first house, I had a construction loan that was 21%. (laughs) And my mortgage was 13.5%. And I was looking back at my parents and their mortgage, which they had early on, and it was 3.5%. And it was like, what world was that? 3.5% mortgage. You know, we were in a different realm. And by the way, uh, in the mid-80s, when rates got back down to 8%, we had a trader in the bond desk who printed a trade and kept the print when it hit 8% because that was like, we're back to normal. So we don't have a lot of perspective, maybe. I'm not saying that rates will go up to 13.5% for mortgages, but really to think that the level that we're at right now is kind of it is missing a lot of potential for risk. And bonds, I think, can be riskier than people may realize. And the only way to really control for bond risk is to hold bonds that sort of have a maturity or duration that's comparable to your time frame. Yeah. To put it into perspective, I was, again, querying the users' Twitter followers on a poll. And my thought process and article I wrote was that bonds on a real basis are not risk-free. I mean, people see T-bills and low-duration bonds as sort of a risk-free investment as their, quote, safe money. And my point was after inflation, there's been periods certainly not really that much in the past 40 years. But prior to that, where that was a money losing asset. And I said, what do you think bonds as large as drawdown was in history? And almost everyone said like less than 5%. And it's up north of, I think, 50. And so it's a different asset, right? It's like a slow decay, usually because of inflation versus stocks, which tend to fall off a cliff at times versus bonds, which tend to be more of a erosion of wealth. See, that's kind of an important point that the risk profile for bonds is closer to the goal profile of individuals than is the risk profile for stocks. They still are lower risk than equities. And if you hold them to maturity, sure enough, you get your principal back. But if you are in a position where you may have to sell it between now and then, you might be selling it for less than what you paid. Let's roll into fabric. Unless there's some other topics that we skated over, anything else that uh, we missed that you wanted to hit before we uh, chat a little bit about your new venture? No, I think we can go there. I think a lot of what I talked about is sort of encapsulated in either why I started Fabric or the characteristics I'm trying to deal with there. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear the origin story. You said, despite the various stops you made in your career. You said, I'm not done yet. I got an entrepreneur startup in me at this point. Let's hear about it. I've met some of your co-founders, Boulder-based. Tell me the origin story. Our headquarters is in Boulder, Colorado, which is like one of the most livable cities in the country right now. But you know, as we mentioned, I'm sitting on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. 
That's a good barbell approach. That is a good risk manager approach as you have some city life, some country diversification as well. It's a smart way to go about it. That's right. Finally, I'll be able to take advantage of that. I got to Fabric. Again, I've been in charge of risk management at banks, hedge funds, working at the Treasury, and then at University of California Pension Endowment. And the basic pivot for what I've done started when I was working at Treasury after the financial crisis, because it's clear that the people who were hurt by the financial crisis, the place where risk management was missing and was most necessary was with individuals. I went to a quasi-individual-focused role by being at University of California because a pension fund is asset owners. A pension fund represents individuals in much the same way that an advisor represents individuals on the larger scale. And then while I was there, through Govinda Quish, who's the CEO of Fabric, we realized that the natural move to take would be to take some of the work that we did for University of California for the pension world and bring it to advisors where there's much more of a close relationship to the issues that individuals have. What are the issues they have? The things I mentioned, longer time frame, risk that comes not just from the market, but from their objectives and changes in their behavior. So what we've done is built an application that takes really institutional level risk management capability. And I can get into what I mean by that in a second, but put it in a form that advisors can use in working with clients. And working with clients, again, getting to one of the points I made is not just integrating their goals with their portfolio, but being able to operate in the human sphere. Risk, basically, in the market or for an individual, is it's not just numbers being cranked out of a computer, it's, it's human by nature. That's one of the points, actually, we didn't touch on very much, but in my mind, the human component, it's human plus machine. That's where you have to look at risk. And so you can take the risk approach that we have and the application we have and put it in a context that's easy to use, that can be used for narrative, for interaction with a client. So the key thing is what it means to have it be institutional level is it, first of all, doesn't just look at history and assume, okay, that's what's going to happen in the future. It doesn't just look at some scenario and say, oh, if this happens, the market will be down 20%. There's a lot more going on with those things. But another thing that we do is we use a factor-based approach to look at risk, which is kind of the standard approach that's used now for any sort of institutions. And we have a partnership with a firm called MSCI, which is not only the grandfather of using factors, but it's the standard approach now. So you can look at a client's portfolio, not only in terms of what are its assets and how those assets interact to create the risk, but what are the factors? Things like you can have sector factor exposure like technology. You can have country factor exposure like exposure to China, but not just a China stock, but China through the supply chain effects on, on other stocks that you have. You can have a factor approach to value versus growth. And these sorts of exposures, these risk factors kind of thread through a portfolio. And so you can have a portfolio with hundreds of stocks, but ultimately it might be five to 10 factors 
that really govern what's driving the risk of those stocks. And you can intelligently talk about those, whereas it's hard to intelligently talk about this whole portfolio. So that's kind of the basis of what we're trying to do. Take a lot of these characteristics of what really matter for risk management, put them in a human framework and in an application that really you can just use. I mean, it's not like it's rocket science. Yeah, I mean, the human framework comment is really important, particularly when you're dealing with individuals, because there is so much jargon in our world. I feel like it's always hard to distinguish between what is truly relevant and what is just a distraction. And so what's the best way to think about kind of what you guys are doing? Is it like a x-ray into a portfolio? Is it like an event study where you're like, hey, this is FYI, here's how we're set up. Here's how you're going to probably end up. Here's how you could end up. Like, what is the main sort of levers that when you sit down with an advisor who's armed with this technology that is going to kind of get spit out? What's the input and what's the output of this sausage? It's both an x-ray and an event study, you know, to use your words. The starting point is the person's portfolio, the goals and risk characteristics of the individual who's holding that portfolio. The inputs are really pretty simple. The outputs also are pretty simple. The outputs are where you exposed, where maybe once you look at it, you say, I don't really want to be exposed. Where does your exposure lead you versus the client's goals? And how can I express that exposure in a way that's kind of plain English? And that's where the factors come into play. So for example, to take an event study or scenario, let me use inflation as a case study because I, I talked about that earlier. Okay, so you've got your portfolio. You may look and say, okay, I see your portfolio. It's kind of S&P-like, but it kind of differs a little bit from the S&P in different ways. Does the way that it differs or does the S&P itself matter for you versus where your goals are going if you're really worried about inflation? And maybe you're worried about tech and recession too, but fine. We'll start with inflation. Well, the first thing that we can say is inflation is, as I said before, it's not just a matter of, oh, if inflation occurs, rates will go up and stocks will drop. Some things drop more than others. Low cap, smaller stocks will drop more than high cap stocks. Brick and mortar companies with a cost structure will be affected more than tech companies that have intellectual property. Companies that have to fund themselves are highly levered and have to fund themselves short term are going to be really in a bad situation because their cost of funding will go up. Fine. Let's look at the leverage factor, the value factor, which is sort of brick and mortar oriented versus a technology factor. Where's your exposure there? Let's look at your high cap versus low cap. Let's look at those factors and home in on those to see what your risk would be in this event. And then we might say, gee, I know you love value, and I know you really love to push in mid-cap. So on a factor basis, you tend to be there. But geez, if you're worried about inflation, maybe we should kind of reposition what you're doing. The other thing is, what's your time frame versus what would happen with inflation? It may be that with inflation, it's not like, boom, these scenarios occur, and that's the end of that. If we have inflation it's going to have a long glide path. So depending on your time frame, you may be more worried about inflation than you are about tech. Because when a bubble bursts, it's violent, but it doesn't like last for a long time. 
So the glide path of the risk of one thing versus another may matter to you depending on your goals. And then the advantage of this is, so I don't know which of these things might happen. I don't know exactly how bad they'll be, but now we can have an intelligent conversation before they happen, sort of do a pre-mortem, kind of worry ahead of time so that if this does occur, you're not sitting there as my client on the phone wondering, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's going to happen now? What should I do? We got it. We've trained for this fight. We know how it'll hopefully go. We can monitor it and see if it deviates from what we thought, save a lot of consternation for you as a client and save a lot of time for me as an advisor having to walk you through it. It's interesting because setting the expectations and sort of laying the groundwork for when the bad times will happen and expectations is the classic value add behaviorally of a financial advisor and is also historically like one of the biggest challenges because people, when the bad times hit, it's particularly unsettling if you weren't expecting it or you had expectations that largely deviate from the outcome. And that applies to everything in life, not just certainly investments, but if anyone watched White Lotus, the difference between your expectations of a hotel and then if you get a bad room, a relationship that doesn't work out, on and on, like that's where the emotional fractures happen. And so at least saying, look, here's the parts of the portfolio. Here's how this works together. Here's how the future could play out in these different scenarios, realizing it's, you know, will always be different. I think is incredibly useful. A lot of people often kind of want to gloss over it and their role just says, look, you're fine. Let me take care of it. But that's sort of delaying the conversation to another day when the bad times are happening. And it might be that you're not fine, but it's sort of like, look, you're not fine now, but we kind of knew that if this sort of thing happened, you wouldn't be fine, but we've sort of have talked about ways to deal with it beforehand. To your point, we have issues like this throughout our lives. Some of them, like with relationships, it's a tough one. You can't model it. But the nice thing about finance and investments and that part of our lives is we can sort of get some handle on what's going on. An advisor at least can in that sphere give people some maybe not total peace of mind, but certainly some peace of mind. How much do you expect this to be used by advisors that will actually result in advisor portfolio changes operationally where like they didn't know you like send this through the fabric x-ray and software. And they're like, oh, wait, crap. I didn't know this is how we're positioned. I imagine that'll be a pretty material use of the platform too. Yeah. I think it'll be, one thing is being pre-armed for what might happen and understanding how that could affect your goals. And then the next question is, okay, what can we do about that? So if you're worried about inflation, I know the direction we need to go. If you're worried about tech, Geez, even without looking twice, you're really having exposed to, and the factor approach would show that we're just saying, hey, I'm in a ETF that looks like the S&P, we're good. But the thing is that I wouldn't expect people to do major reshufflings of a portfolio because by and large, advisors and individuals get it. They kind of know Nobody's totally crazy. I mean, a lot, maybe some people are, but people get it that you do have to be diversified. And then you sort of make adjustments or biases around the edges. 
It's not like I'm really into China. I'm going to put 90% of my portfolio in China. You'll be sort of in a broad-based portfolio, and then you'll buy a China ETF. But the first thing to do is to realize, wait a minute, maybe I'm in China without even realizing it as things stand, because so much of the supply chain of the companies I hold comes from China. At least I know that. I wanted to bet on China. Hey, I've got a bet on China. If you want to bet on technology, hey, you already have that bet. You may want to move a bit around the edges. And here I can go back. When I was at University of California, we had a $170 billion portfolio. But you take away zeros and it's like, well, it's not quite actually like what you do as an individual because we have private equity and stuff. But the point is, we start with a base case of a benchmark and then we move away from that deliberately. When we move away, it's plus or minus 2%, 3%, 5%. We don't go crazy, but we know the ways that we're adjusting. So I wouldn't expect when somebody takes our application, they're going to say, oh my gosh, where am I? You know, I'm totally off the wall. But they might say, you know, incrementally, we actually have this bet implied that we don't really want. We should adjust somewhat on the margin for that. Or it might be that incrementally, I know that you as an individual have a very strong sense or affinity towards whatever. So we'll incrementally move to that. Or believe it or not, you already are incrementally moved to that because that risk factor is already implicit in a lot of your positions. So that's sort of a long answer, maybe to your question, but I think it can be valuable for rejiggering the portfolio, but I don't think people are going to just sweep everything away and start from scratch. What is the runway look like for you guys? Are you out in the market yet? Are you launching in 2021? What's the plans? The timing is really good because we just now, this week, are bringing our application to market. Wow, congrats. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, it's been developed for a while. We've been pre-selling it. If you go to our website, which is fabricrisk.com, so that's an easy one to remember. It's a very easy website. You go to fabricrisk.com. There's a button to push, put in your email, you get a demo. I mean, we can set up a time to show you a demo. And if you like it, you can get it. There's also, I have a little video there, but you won't care too much about the video because if you're listening to this, you got it already. I just want to watch your little animation video. Is I want to turn that into my um, screensaver. It's mesmerizing. Yeah, so that's kind of the fabric. So when we first came up with the name, people were saying, what? Where's fabric? You know, like shirts. And we're saying, no, no, it's the fabric of the market, like sort of the fabric time and so on. And so we have this multicolored moving thing that is supposed to evoke not so much a shirt, but the fabric of space and time. It's like the murmuration of the starlings. Oh, yeah. It looks a lot like it. All right. So target market is financial advisors. You know, it'd be fun at some point. Would love to run. We could almost do like a white paper or study running some of our allocations through y'all's system and come up with a output report demonstrate to all the listeners all of Meb's weird intended and unintended portfolio bias that we have inputted into the strategies we run. I know what it will say. <laughs> We've actually done that obviously for some people already and 
Yeah, it's interesting because, again, people may already realize it, but it'll be there. From a risk factor basis, there's some exposures that sort of weave their way through, to use fabric as an analogy, weave their way through the portfolio. But what's interesting is sometimes they say, yeah, I see that. And I kind of thought that would be there. So it can either be a big surprise or a confirmation. Yeah. Rick, as you look back on your career, what has been the most memorable, you can answer this one either way, investment of yours, but also you could also just say memorable market or experience at any of these various funds and times. I mean, man, there's got to be a list of 20 you could talk about, but is there one that's seared into your brain more than anything? The ones that naturally are seared into your brain are the momentous ones. And I was at Bridgewater after the first part of 2008 crisis, then I was at Treasury. And one of the things I thought was exciting there in both cases was working with younger people. And to me, younger is like 35 and under, but realizing you are in the middle of like a hopefully once in a lifetime event and you're living it to sear in your brain an experience that can help you going on. So that's sort of an experience it's hard to replicate. The two that really hit me and were the basis for my doing the first book, I did A Demon of Our Own Design, which came out right before the financial crisis, was 87, October 1987, when we had the market drop 20% in a day. And understand the dynamics behind that, partly because I was part of what created that crisis. And you can go through the book, I have an old chapter on it, but the short story is I was involved in what was called portfolio insurance. And that really got the ball rolling then. And then the other, which is just not a footnote now, is uh, LTCM, long-term capital management, which was considered the most brilliant people in the world hedge fund, run by these guys and it blew up spectacularly in 1998. And the reason that was so valuable is, first of all, it showed the nature of hubris in the markets that you don't ever really have it figured out. And it showed the interactive dynamics, getting back to the four horsemen of the Econopolis in my book, The End of Theory, the hubris that people had led them to take actions where those very actions were their literal downfall because they took such positions because they're sure the markets would react in a particular way but their actions led to the market not reacting that way and then led to the cascade that resulted in their failure. So a lot of the lessons I have for how I look at the market managers today really come from those two experiences. I feel like one of the weirder beliefs we have today, you referenced one earlier that we've talked a lot about on the show, which is people justifying equity prices in the U.S. due to low interest rates. And we could go on for an hour about that. So despite the fact the rest of the world has much cheaper markets, despite much of the rest of the world having lower interest rates than the US, there's a belief amongst participants, and I don't know how ironclad this belief is, but certainly you hear people justify why the market's going higher as one of the reasons that the Fed will save them. And to me, that sounds like such a strange thing to be counting on because I don't see outside of a pandemic that being a, something that I would ever want to put my <laughs> to put my bet based on, right? 
Is that something you hear much? Yeah. I mean, the Fed did save us in March. Whatever is going on now with Powell, what he did then was breathtaking and courageous to take the level of aggressiveness on such a short time frame when markets were really on the throes of disaster. You know, the Treasury market, one of the days in March, the Treasury market traded $250 million. This is the most liquid market in the world. And so the Fed did pull us from the precipice then. But don't bet on it. That was like, hopefully, a once in a lifetime event. I don't even know what it would mean for the Fed to pull us back from just the market moving down and moving down and moving down back to kind of fundamental levels that are reasonable in the past. Why would they do that? The thing about the PE ratio and interest rates, the basic idea is if rates are low, you're discounting earnings 20 years out and 30 years out, and the present value is pretty high because you're discounting at a low interest rate. Well, if you are in your finance 101 class and you're looking at the Gordon growth model or dividend discount model, yeah, that's how that works. You take earnings going out 10, 20, 30 years, discount them back, you get the price. But nobody in real life does that. Nobody in real life, when they're looking at a company and they're valuing a company, tries to project out what the earnings will be like in 20 years and discount it back. Because you know the world's going to change and that company is going to be different. So the whole premise that people are using in relying on low interest rates to justify a high PE is not consistent with the real world approach to valuation and I think the common sense approach to valuation. And I think it's just as simple as that, that PEs are high, things are maybe overshooting fundamentals, and people are trying to find an excuse for why what they're seeing and what they're holding is reasonable to hold. Some of the sentiment we chatting the other day and some of the threads where people seem downright angry at the possibility that stocks are expensive. And I think you've seen the recent expectations surveys where people are expecting 15%. So best of luck to you, friends. Rick, this has been a whirlwind tour, man. Listeners, check out his books online on Amazon. We'll post links in the show notes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast and check out Best place to find what you're up to, Fabric, Risk, where else? If people want to find out your musings, is there a good uh, home base? Is Fabric the best place? This is like a longer term process than I ever thought it would be to build a website. We have an interim website, which is the raw, what you need to know to be able to sign up. We have things that I've been writing, so there'll be a lot there. I tend to write things in LinkedIn. I've written, tend to come out with various articles and different places, mostly places focused on where financial advisors would look at things. But if you visit the website, you'll be able to find a lot of the things that I've been talking about and writing recently. Well, I'm excited for your journey. I look forward to following up and kind of see how this offering works out. We'll definitely check it out and hopefully can run some uh, studies on our end as well. Rick, it's been a blast. We'll let you get back to the beautiful autumn in New York City. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>